Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. I think I'll um, call the seminar to order. Uh, today we are fortunate to have um, Dr. Hanjun Kim, um, who is most or all of you know is a research fellow at Griffith Asia Institute. I believe this is your second yeah. presentation uh, with this seminar. It's been here less than a year, which is impressive. This for us to shame um, in the past, Hanjun has um, written and argued convincingly, uh, most recently I think in an ISQ article, about a correlation between um, human rights prosecutions and uh, human rights, improved human rights conditions. And I think the plan is today for him to explain to us how that comes to pass. Um, thank you very much. Um, thank you all for coming to my research seminar. The, today, uh, the title of today's talk is, as you can see, How do human rights prosecutions improve the human rights after transitions? The question, this question somehow presupposes that the human rights prosecutions improve the human rights in the first place. And therefore, we must explore the mechanisms through which such prosecutions improve the human rights. The reason why it sounds like that is, as Frank mentions, uh, is because this project is a part two of my research that I'm collaborating with uh, Professor Catherine Sicking on the impact of the pro uh, human rights prosecutions. Um, here's uh, the outline of my talk. The first, I'll briefly explain what human rights prosecutions are. Many of us are familiar with the well-known cases, such as the trials of the, the, the juntas in Argentina and then the Pinochet um, case in Chile. But um, the much more is happening around the world. And second, uh, since most of you are not familiar with my previous work and uh, our previous work, um, uh, and there is certainly some overlap between the two, I will summarize the major findings from my previous uh, study. Uh, we actually completed our uh, research in 2006, but, the, but published this last December. So it took four years for us to publish, and then, as you all know, that uh, there's delays in the publication. So, um, so this explains why we are launching a new project only after the three months uh, of uh, its publications. So since it has been out there for more than four years, uh, I thought we, thought we decided that it would be a good timing to explore the further on this issue. So our new research question is to study the mechanisms through which the human rights prosecutions improve the human rights. Then I will introduce, uh, my pre uh, introduce the previous theories, a uh, drawing certain causal path uh, between the human rights prosecutions and human rights. There are two important theories derived from um, the study of criminology, criminology and then the political science and international law, uh, international relations and international law. Uh, those are the relevant uh, literatures. Uh, I will then briefly mention the research design, uh, focusing on, on my data, hypothesis, and method, and then uh, I will present my findings. Um, which is, so far, um, is, is some of preliminary findings. Then I will conclude uh, my presentation with a discussion for the future development. This project is a work in progress, uh, so any comments and suggestions are welcomed. 
including those requiring a big shift in my research paradigm. You know, it doesn't matter because we have uh, we just started this project, and I am further pursuing a similar uh, project in my current uh, ARC uh, or the early career uh, early career applications, and I am also scheduled to present this this uh, current paper in front of the criminologist uh, in September and also in front of the law scholars uh, next year. So there will be a many occasions to expose this research to, to under people's criticism. So I would love to have your uh, criticism before uh, the criminologists and the lawyers. <laughs> okay. So the human rights prosecution is uh, the criminal prosecution of the former state officials for the human rights violations while in their office. So by prosecuting the human rights violation, we refer to the process including the indictment, the arrest, extradition, detention, as well as the trials for the violation of the core human rights by the state officials. What I mean by the core human rights violations are, uh, those are in including the torture, the summary execution, and disappearance and political imprisonment and genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity, which we uh, hear a lot these days. Um, these right, the, these human, rights by, uh, human rights are often referred to as a non-derogable rights in many international human rights and humanitarian conventions. Um, as mentioned, there are many well-known cases, such as Fujimori in Peru, and then the Bordaberry in Uruguay, and, and in also including the Saddam Hussein in Iraq. But there are many lesser-known cases. So, so far, there has been 33 countries in the world among the 71 uh, democratized countries that have used such prosecutions. The number of countries using such prosecutions are, uh, first of all, increasing, and then many countries are more frequently using the such prosecutions. For example, the Argentina, which is known as a pioneer of these uh, human rights trials, uh, in 2010 had over 212 human rights lawsuits currently uh, in process. And then about 330 peoples, the individuals, are being held in preventive detention uh, for, because of these uh, trials. So similar pattern also exists in, uh, in Chile, Peru, and Sierra Leone, and Cambodia, and Luanda, to name a few. Our previous study addresses the impact of these human rights prosecutions because there have been two groups of scholars predicting the negative impact of the such prosecutions. The first group of scholars is the one who first observed the human rights prosecutions in newly democratizing countries in Latin America and Eastern Europe. The scholars like Samuel Huntington and then Guillermo O'Donnell in late 1980s and early 1990s were mainly interested in the stability of these new regimes and, and um, found that such prosecutions are detrimental to the stabilities. Their view was supported in case of Argentina, where President Alfonso's junta trials uh, in early ni in 1980s met with a, a lot of coup attempts um, by the, the military personnel. 
and then which finally led to a general amnesty by the next president, President Menem, in Argentina. However, what these scholars, Huntington and then O'Donnell, were um, what they did not know, and they were in somehow short-sighted, is that there was a new trend in global politics and new trend in Argentina alone, um, you know, ever since 2004, where the Menem's amnesty law has been revoked, and then new trials is now in progress. And then this trend is uh, somewhat global, and then scholars like Catherine Seeking has been conceptualized and then described this trend as a justice cascade, or um, you know, Chandra Sriram. Uh, both of them will be here in June, so if you're interested. The Chandra Sriram has been conceptualized this as a revolution in the accountability. Um, so that's the first generation of uh, skeptics. And, uh, however, there has been a second generation of skeptics who uh, can um, be level, uh, labeled as a realist scholar in international relations or security studies. These scholars argue that the threat of prosecutions could cause a powerful dictator or the insurgents to entrench themselves in a power rather than negotiate a transition from authoritarian regime or the civil war. There are several friendly examples for them, such as the controversial war of the International Criminal Court, uh, prosecution in prolonging the conflict in northern Uganda and uh, Darfur, Sudan. And then the, the most uh, recent example of uh, Gaddafi in Libya, too. Interestingly, this morning uh, on my way to school, I heard uh, one commentator making the exact the same argument by saying that the investigation and then possible prosecution by the uh, chief prosecutor, uh, the Moreno Campo of the ICC, endangers the situation in Libya by blocking the Gaddafi's exit. So these are the kind of arguments these security scholars are making. Um, our work was a response to these skeptics who are making a consequentialist argument on the negative impact of the human rights persecutions. This figure summarizes our finding quite nicely. Uh, this figure shows that changes in the average repression score for the countries with a different prosecution experience. A gray line in the middle indicates the changes in the yearly average of the repression score in the transitional countries. And then we compare that with the mean score of the countries with human rights uh, prosecutions uh, to those without human rights prosecutions. The distinction between the two lines becomes clear and stable after 1994. The average repression score of the countries without prosecutions are constantly above the average, while the mean score of the scores, uh, while the mean repression score of the countries with prosecutions are uh, constantly below the average. So this is just a simple comparison of the mean, comparison of the average. Um, but this relations firmly holds in an advanced statistical analysis. So. In our previous studies, we found that the countries with the human rights prosecutions are less repressive than countries without such prosecutions. Thus, our finding supports the positive impact of the human rights prosecutions and refutes the negative impact. And we further found that the human rights prosecutions not only have an immediate 
uh, and the short-term effect, but also have a long-term effect in improving the human rights. But before pursuing further, I want to stress that there is a, another group of scholars, especially lawyers, philosophers, and the political and legal theorists, and the human rights activists, who believes that the human rights prosecutions are legally and ethically desirable, regardless of their positive or negative impact. Their view is fundamentally based on the deontological reasoning that the human rights prosecutions are desirable because they achieve the retribution and the punishment and thus restore the justice. For these scholars, the consequentialist arguments like us and then like uh, other scholars are relatively less important. Uh, these deontological arguments are oftentimes uh, victim-centered and follows a orthodox view of the criminal justice. Uh, when I first started this project uh, in my dissertation, I also shared this kind of view of, about the desirability of the human rights prosecutions. And after six years of research, I still believe that this reasoning and this, um, re this, this logic and reasoning is powerful and still convincing. But, uh, however, I had to engage with this consequentialist argument because this is how the realist scholars, first of all, set the, set the rule of the, uh, the game in the field of international relations. So I had to engage with them in the first place. But, um, you know, if there is a chance, I, I'm always trying to liberate myself from the consequentialist trap and then to try to work on more, more on the deontological basis. Um, because one of my, um, one of my, uh, PhD training is also in a political theory, so I, I am mean, equipped with the, the, the tool, but I haven't so far engaged with the, that uh, discourse yet. Uh, so in this paper, we explore the new question, and the new question is uh, to explore the causal mechanisms through which the human rights persecutions improve human rights. But before uh, introducing the causal mechanisms, let me introduce a two relevant literatures in political science, law, and criminology, the predicting the positive impact of human rights prosecutions. The first, there is a deterrence theory in criminology and then the sociology of law, predicts that an increase in the likelihood of punishment or enforcement has a greater deterrence effect. In other words, if one person is punished for the crime, this punishment will reduce the likelihood that another person in the same place or somewhere else will uh, offend in the future. So this is a basic deterrence theory. And second, the literature we bring is the compliance literature in international law and international relations. Compliance refers to the behavior um, that is or, or comes into a relative conformity with the prescribed or proscribed standards. The scholars of international law also predicts that the increase in the enforcement or the increase in the coercion of international law should lead to an increase in uh, with compliance. Um, based on these two literatures, we came up with the two important um, mechanisms how uh, trials, how human rights prosecutions improve the human rights. The first mechanism is a coercion or enforcement if, uh, mechanism. And then second mechanism is a socialization or the norm mechanisms. 
both effects could be uh, detected in uh, both compliance literature and then the uh, and then deterrence literatures. For example, the major compliance literature argues that the increase in coercion or enforcement leads to the compliance. And uh, similarly, the deterrence theory also argues that the increase in the enforcement will lead to a more effective deterrence. So that's the basic coercion and enforcement theory. On the other hand, uh, norm and socialization effects are also suggested by scholars like Chais and Chais in compliance literature. And they argue that the compliance could occur for normative reasons, even in the absence of strong enforcement. Likewise, in deterrence literature, also uh, argue that there is a deterrence, uh, argues that the deterrence is dependent upon the perception of the risk of offending, and then uh, the closeness between the perceived risk and then the actual risk. So there must be a certain interpretation there, and their information effect is there between the perceived uh, risk and then the actual risk. And then there's a legal scholars who's arguing that this, the trials or the human rights prosecutions, certainly has a messaging effect, uh, saying that the punishment kind of affirms the value of the law, and then strengthens the social solidarity, and then incubates the moral consensus among the public. So, you know, because of this expressivist function of the law, or the educational or socializing effect of the law, the gap, the distance between the actual risk and then the perceived risk narrows. So it has a, it, it, it could strengthen the deterrence effect. So that's the, how the socialization or the norm works in the deterrence uh, literatures. However, we should be clear that the norm and socialization literatures does not say that the stronger enforcement is counterproductive for compliance or deterrence. What they are saying is just that strong enforcement may not be necessary in all circumstances and that behavioral change is possible in the absence of the enforcement mechanisms. So the greatest challenge for us is to separate out the function of the enforcement mechanisms and then the, uh, the function of the enforcement mechanisms from the function of the socialization mechanisms. This is especially, I think, challenging in a statistical analysis which we are attempting to do here. So in this paper, we try to operationalize the enforcement and socialization effect by first, uh, by comparing the effect of the human rights prosecutions to that of the truth commissions. And second, uh, by disaggregating the complex human rights prosecution processes. So uh, I'll accept, explain further what I mean by this uh, uh, comparing and then uh, disaggregating. The first, we compare the impact of the human rights prosecutions to that of the truth commissions. The human rights prosecutions are not only the instances of punishment and enforcement, but also is a very high-profile symbolic event that communicates norms. So uh, it is difficult to separate the enforcement impact of the punishment from the normative impact of the socialization. 
one indirect way to compare the impact of the uh, prosecution, one, uh, one indirect way is to compare uh, the impact of pr uh, prosecution to that of the Truth Commission. Because Truth Commission produces information and convey norms and communicates norms, but do not necessarily involve pun material punishment. So if only the enforcement and punishment matters, we would not expect the Truth Commission to have an effect. However, if both normative and the material punishment are at work in deterrence, we would expect to see that the Truth Commission will also improve the human rights. So that's our hypothesis that we are going to test. And second, we compared the impact of the human rights prosecutions and that of the human rights... <coughs> so we compared the, the impact of the human rights prosecutions to the impact of the human rights prosecutions that ended in conviction. So here the difference is whether that process has ended in conviction or not. One criticism that we often got in our previous research is that our definition of human rights prosecution is too broad um, than what people usually think about the human rights trials. Uh, several reviewers actually asked us to limit our analysis uh, to those cases that ended in convictions. Uh, and other scholars also try to define the human rights trials or human rights prosecutions as a, those cases that ended in convictions. However, we strongly believe that all prosecutorial processes deter the future human rights uh, violations. For example, the most uh, uh, important trials in the century is the Pinochet case and the Milosevic case. But both cases did not end in convictions because they both died in the court. So we think that conviction, however, captures the essence of the material enforcement and punishment element. Of course, all other processes, the indictment, arrest, and then extradition and detention and trials impose a certain cost and the sanctions. However, as I mentioned, many scholars believe that these costs cannot be compared to the enforcement and coercion imposed by the conviction. So our second proposition is, if enforcement and coercion mechanism is, were to valid, then we would expect to see that the human rights prosecutions that ended in convictions will have a greater effect in deterring the future human rights violation than the human rights prosecutions that did not end it in such convictions. That's our second proposition. And then third, finally, we examine the possible divergent effect between the prosecutions of high and low ranking state officials. The prosecutions are high level if the accused falls under the, the any of the following categories. The president uh, or other heads of uh, the states, generals, admirals, uh, ministers, and then heads or director of the security and intelligence agents. Those are the high-level uh, prosecutions. The low-level prosecutions would include those of the uh, foot soldiers, uh, the police officers, prison guards, as well as any military officers or state officials below the level of the high-level officials. The human rights prosecutions of the high-profile state officials draw uh, much more social and the media attention to their processes and to their outcomes than 
do prosecutions of the lower level state officials. Therefore, uh, our third proposition is that if socialization and norm communication mechanism is valid, we would expect to see that the high-level prosecutions or convictions will have a greater impact than the low-level prosecutions or convictions. So uh, to test this hypothesis, we used our updated uh, data set up to 2006 for this paper. Uh, and we tested uh, our hypothesis against the 71 countries that have had democratic transition between 1974 and 2006. Our independent variables are the human rights prosecutions and convictions at both high and low level uh, state officials, and also the truth commissions. We coded this information from the U.S. Department of State human rights reports. And second, our dependent variables uh, measuring the level of the human rights is a theory, a physical integrity index, and then we also used other measures such as political terror scale and then the Freedom House uh, rankings uh, to test the robustness of our findings. And uh, we controlled for the following possible factors that might affect the level of the human rights and uh, human uh, the level of the human rights. And we also went through a rigorous test to address the both endogeneity issue and then possible dispurious relations. And uh, finally, we use a regression analysis, uh, which I'm happy to talk uh, if anyone is interested uh, in the Q&A session. So um, this one uh, and then next slide present a snapshot of uh, my independent and dependent variables. The first, this figure shows that increase in the number of countries using the human rights prosecutions and high-level human rights prosecution in the world. Uh, the upper line is the number of countries with the democratic transition, and then the middle one is about the number of uh, countries with the human rights prosecution, and then uh, the bottom one uh, is about the uh, high-level uh, human rights prosecutions. And the next figure uh, summarizes the changes in the average score of the repression over time. The graph on the left panel uh, pr uh, uh, presents the mean score of the physical integrity right index, which is the uh, uh, level of repression. The level of repression fell sharply in the 1980s and remains relatively stable since then. So findings. Okay. The first finding is that we found that both human rights prosecutions and truth commissions contribute to improved human rights prosecutions. So not only the human rights prosecutions, but also truth commission also have a positive impact on human rights. These findings uh, indirectly suggest that the mechanisms through which the human rights prosecutions influence the human rights do not only um, involve an enforcement mechanism, but also a normative and socialization processes. It suggests that it is not merely the material enforcement that exerted effect, deterrence effect. If it were only the fear of punishment that is producing a deterrence effect, we would not expect the use of truth commissions to be associated with any improvement in human rights. 
And if, as you can see in the third column, as the magnitude is the, the, the effect of uh, the, the certain variables, um, we also found that the effect is much stronger when the human rights prosecutions are used in combination with the truth commissions. The effect almost doubles and is statistically significant. So our findings suggest that any arguments about the mechanisms through which human rights prosecutions contribute to the improved hum uh, human rights must combine the attentions to both their material enforcement effect and then the normative socialization effect. That's our first finding. And then second finding, we found that not only those prosecutions that resulted in convictions, but also the prosecution process themselves have a positive impact on future human rights, uh, uh, a positive impact on the, on, the, on the human rights. This finding provides an evidence, empirical evidence, for the positive impact of um, prosecutorial activities which do not result in conviction, such as uh, arrest, extradition, detention, and the trial process. So this confirms our previous belief that not only convictions, but all the prosecutorial activities have a deterrence effect. However, as you can see uh, in the magnitude role, the stronger enforcement um, and coercion, which was measured by the conviction, does actually leads to the stronger deterrence effect. Thus, this finding supports the enforcement hypothesis by showing that the prosecutions that ended in convictions have a greater impact on human, uh, human rights protections. <clears throat> and third finding, the prosecution of lower, low-level state officials who actually carry out the human rights violations have a strong deterrence effect. Uh, this is uh, encouraging because most actual human rights violations are carried up, out by the low-level officials, such as the police officers and secret service agents and then prison guards and then soldiers. However, prosecution of the high-level state officials, on the other hand, do not have a statistically significant effect. Uh, this finding, first of all, provides an empirical evidence against the norm and the socialization effect, which is measured by the high-level prosecutions. It turns out that the high-level prosecutions do not necessarily lead to a stronger effect. However, the picture gets a, a, a little more complicated uh, by our fourth finding. Both high and then low-level human rights prosecutions that ended in convictions are associated with the improvements in human rights. Uh, this finding, if combined with our previous finding, the third finding, provides uh, evidence for the enforcement hypothesis. Because in case of the high-level human rights, uh, high-level state officials, the convictions have a greater impact than the prosecutorial processes. In addition, the impact of high-level conviction is greater than the low-level convictions, which provides an evidence for the norm and the socialization hypothesis. As predicted, the high-level human rights prosecutions that ended in convictions have a greater impact 
than the low-level convictions. So <laughs> there is a conflicting findings here. That I try to I'll try to summarize this in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, the following a few uh, slides. So when uh, when you lined up the different options according to the magnitude of their impact, we can see uh, certain patterns. So this is the from the most and then to the least effective measures. So the first pattern is that when um, the, co the combination of trials and truth commissions always has a greater impact than the trials or truth commission used alone. So that's for certain. And second pattern is that the human rights prosecutions ended in convictions always has a greater impact than those that did, than those did not end it in convictions, which is a strong support for the enforcement mechanisms. So uh, any prosecutorial activities that ended in, uh, ended in uh, convictions always um, have a greater, uh, stronger impact than the prosecution process itself. And finally, the third pattern is that <clears throat> the high-level cases generally have a greater impact than those of the low-level officials uh, supporting the norm and socialization effect. So high-level prosecutions and high-level uh, high convictions have a greater impact than the low-level um, convictions generally. However, with the exception of the high-level prosecutions, as you can see in, in the bottom here. In, in the bottom, the high-level prosecutions alone doesn't have any statistically significant effect. <clears throat> this is puzzling, and uh, we came up with uh, three possible interpretation why the high-level prosecutions is statistically not significant. <clears throat> the first interpretation is this, that this could suggest that the enforcement mechanism uh, is stronger than the norm and socialization mechanism in case of the high-level prosecutions. The high-level prosecutions, if you remember, uh, often is a very symbolic and performative and often leads to an acquittal or the dismissal of the case. In some cases, the prosecution pro uh, uh, prosecutions are pro uh, processed in absentia, uh, which also decreases the credibility of the court and diminishes the effect of these high-profile cases. So that might be the first, inter first reason we think why the high-level prosecution didn't have a statistically uh, significant effect. And second um, interpretation is that the high-level prosecutions are highly political and thus uncertain in nature. The uncertainty associated with the high-level prosecutions also could diminish the deterrence effect of these prosecutions. And final uh, interpretation might be that the prosecutions of the high-level state officials that fail to conclude or, uh, or uh, result in a dismissal or acquittal are communicating a different set of norms and expectations. So um, unlike the human rights uh, prosecutions that ended in convictions, which clearly communicates the norm of, of, of accountability, the human rights prosecutions that did not end it in convictions may communicate a norm about impunity or the, a norm about the political and then legal privilege that the high-level uh, officials have. So that's our third interpretation, but these are still up in the air, and then we have to 
pursue further uh, to see what explains the non-significance of these uh, high-level persecutions. So, uh, so far, um, we have a mixed uh, findings about the mechanism through which the human rights persecutions improve human rights. It seems like our findings equally supports the vo both enforcement mechanism and norm and socialization mechanisms. Uh, so we do not have a clear verdict yet. Um, and then it is also possible that we might not be able to reach a verdict because it seems like the both uh, mechanisms are highly linked and they have a very symbiotic relations. Um, so what next? Uh, the first thing that we have to do is to update our data to 2010. So we already have the data and then uh, just to see whether these findings still holds if we expand the data to up to, to, up to up 2010. That's the first task that we have to do. And then the second task <coughs> is that we are thinking of improving our measurements and operationalization. The current measurements uh, that I introduced here are rather indirect measures. And uh, so we always started uh, to collect the more refined data that exactly measures what we want to measure. So for example, we are currently collecting the data on the sentences. So the how long the sentences or the how severe the sentences get for these cases uh, in order to exactly measure the level of sanctions. And then we are also collecting more information of each prosecutorial processes. So I think it might be interesting to see uh, the result comparing the impact of the arrest versus the impact of the detention. You know, certainly have a different uh, material cost involved there. So we are trying to get more um, data, uh, collect more data on that. And in addition, we are also collecting uh, the data on the frequency of the media coverage of these trials to see whether actually there is a more communication of information uh, by the media or the, there has been a communication of information by the uh, human rights NGOs, activists. So those are the really important next steps that we have to go. And then the third uh, uh, way that we should go, uh, I, we might um, be able to go, is the finding other causal paths, try to explore the other causal path. A few scholars um, I met uh, last year uh, have uh, suggested there might be a, some other mediating factor than the deterrence effect. Uh, between uh, other than the deterrence effect. So, for example, Domingo has come up with there's a, you know, it is actually the judicial sector reform or the security sector reform that follows the transition that reduces the, the human rights violation. You know, that's a plausible argument. And also, the SCAR uh, also says that, that the judicial reform and then the, especially the reform of the prosecutorial offices and then judges are actually exerting a certain influence over the, the, the improvement in human rights. So those are all possible uh, causal routes, I think, and we have to consider these routes. And then um, the other important critical thing that we have to do is that the statistical analysis part that we have so far pre uh, presented is a part of our research, and we uh, are trying to augment our research with the case studies, which we are familiar with. So I'm familiar with the South Korean case, and then Catherine Seeking is familiar with the well, she's familiar with uh, all Latin American countries, but especially the, the um, Argentina. So it will be really relevant if we can have some clear examples and then clear causal, uh, can show the clear causal paths, how this enforcement and socialization works in the actual trials in South Korea and Argentina. So that's the next step. Uh, but, but most of all, at this stage, I think your feedback is mostly 
useful. Uh, thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.